Ginger, Ginger broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, the boom car out, and landed on his back. Fuck you. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is that we're all shit. I'll be able to get a cab Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Merry Ozmas one and all. I hope that you're having a great festive period. And if you're listening to this on December 25th, a very Merry Christmas to you. And if you're listening after that, it either means I didn't get the episode out in time, or you decided to do that mad thing of spending time with your family, which I can't blame you for doing, considering what an absolute shitter of a year 2020 has been. So today we're going to be taking another trip outside of the walls of the Oswald State Correctional Facility Level 4, where we will be covering the debut episode of Nurse Jackie. But this episode was very nearly going to be looking back at the debut episode of The Sopranos. We covered Edie Falco's exit from Oz on the Series 3 finale, although as I mentioned we will hear a voice again in phone call form in the future, and when you look back at the people who had either been killed off or just left the show, Diane's exit from Oz is probably one of the biggest we've had so far, having been on the show from the very beginning. Having gone back and watched that episode of The Sopranos, something which I've wanted to do for some time because I don't think I've re-watched the show since shortly after it finished, I got to thinking, there's a ton of shows, various other podcasts and books etc, that have covered The Sopranos in so much depth, probably far better than I could and who I'd probably just end up referencing myself, What am I really going to be adding to what's already out there? Watching it back as well, Edie was in that first episode more than I remember, but there's also a lot of world building going on within it, and the focus is more on Tony Soprano and everyone's relationship to him. Whereas with Nurse Jackie, Edie is playing the lead and everything is focused around her, so I figured this to be the better option. That's not to say we won't ever go through the toll booth of the New Jersey Turnpike. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't know. I might do a Carmella Soprano-focused episode at some point down the line. I'll have to see what my Sopranos rewatch uncovers. Debuting on Showtime on June 8th, 2009, Nurse Jackie was created and written by Liz Brixius, Evan Dunsky, and Linda Wallen, all of whom also have producer credits, with additional producers Jennifer Cady, Brad Carpenter, Richie Jackson, Jerry Kupfer, Karen Manderback, John Melfi, and Alan Coulter, who also directed the episode, and who had previously worked with Edie on The Sopranos, where he directed 12 episodes over the course of the show's first five seasons, and also served as a producer. Prior to the show's premiere, Linda Brixius told the New York Daily News, Guy's stories tend to be about conquests, getting the job, winning the Olympics, or whatever. Women's stories aren't as immediately climactic, so they need to play out over the course of three months. And every medical show out there has been about doctors. Doctors are absolutely unable to do what they do without nurses, and we want to tell those stories. Let us go then, 
you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. T.S. Eliot, 10th grade English, Sister Jane DeChantel. What a champ. She's the one who told me that the people with the greatest capacity for good are the ones with the greatest capacity for evil. Smart fucking nun. All right, I got one for you. What do you call a nurse with a bad back? Unemployed. But um bump. One left. That sucks. Kick off with piercing white light and wailing ambulance sirens in the background, as well as the sound of someone flatlining, as our title character lays on the ground, reciting T.S. Eliot from her 10th grade English class, referring to her teacher, Sister Jane DeShanto, as the person who told her that the people with the greatest capacity for good are the ones with the greatest capacity for evil. She then allows us to ponder what you call a nurse with a bad back, before hitting the punchline of being unemployed. Holding a bottle of pills in her hand, she shakes it to discover that she only has one remaining, as she pours the contents of the last pill onto a table and snorts it. And all of this is set to Dionne Warwick's version of the theme to Valley of the Dolls. While we hear what will become the show's theme tune playing over the end credits, it's not uncommon for shows to not have its main theme when this show is only at the pilot stage. Solid opening this, we're not left waiting to meet our main character and straight away we know that she's dealing with health problems and a drug dependency. All of which is contrasting against this beautiful piece of music, really solid stuff to start us off with. The theme from Valley of the Dolls, taken from the 1967 film, was the B-side to Dionne Warwick's I Say A Little Prayer single. Despite being released together, the two songs are actually featured on different albums. I Say A Little Prayer appearing on 1967's The Windows of the World, with the latter featured on Dionne Warwick in The Valley of the Dolls from 1968, the same album which featured the much more famous Do You Know The Way To San Jose. Zoom into Jackie's eye and we're soon in the operating theatre where she's overseeing a patient, waiting for the doctor to finish his phone call on his Bluetooth headset, putting this guy in instant knobhead territory. This is Dr. Fitch Cooper and is played by Peter Fascinelli. And as well as being a knobhead, you get a vibe of him being some kind of young upstart fresh out of medical school, although Peter was actually in his mid-thirties when this went to air. Having studied acting at both New York University and the Atlantic Theatre Company Acting School, Fascinelli at this point was best known on TV for having played the lead in Fox's Fast Lane, which only ran for one season but gained a cult following while also having recurring roles on HBO's Six Feet Under, where he appeared in nine episodes across the show's fourth and fifth seasons, and for ten episodes of the first season of Damages on FX. He's probably best known as Dr. Carlisle Cullen in the Twilight movie franchise, the first of which was released about seven months prior to this episode airing, and I've seen those movies more times than I care to remember because my wife fucking loves them but he looks completely different here to what he does in those movies. He must have been suffocating underneath all that white vampire makeup. So Fitch starts to take a look over the patient's injury, a broken tibia and fibula, and his bedside banner leaves a lot to be desired. So Jackie takes over and is constantly talking to her patient, a cyclist named Peter, and is asking him for movement, but he notices Fitch on the other side of the room looking at his phone, and recommends that Fitch get an iPhone. Fitch continues to dick about on his phone while Jackie makes an actual diagnosis examining Peter's eye, and tells Fitch that Peter has a bleed on his brain, 
But Fitch, having spent most of the scene texting, brushes it off saying that Peter's legs just fucked up, and because Peter is lucid, he can't possibly have a bleed, and leaves the operating theatre, saying that they'll fix Peter up real good. Sure enough, Peter passes away seconds later following a flash of light, and we see Fitch leave as Jackie removes Peter's cycling gloves, clearly more affected by Peter's passing than what the so-called Doctor is. So far from suffering a nasty leg break, Peter passes away from acute subdural hematoma, which as Jackie explains, is where the brain puffs up so fast that it rips the blood vessels, causing you to bleed inside your own skull. You're essentially drowning inside your own head. Fade to Jackie on the phone making a call to get Peter's organs donated, arguing with someone about whether or not she has the family's consent, and that time's a factor. As Jackie laments that Peter shouldn't have died, she forges the signature of Peter's driving license to donate his organs, saying that while it may be a shame, it won't be a waste. Cut to Jackie meeting with Peter's mother and brothers to discuss the donation of Peter's organs. My son was an organ donor? He was. Fucking bleeding hard. Give it all away, Petey. What the fuck with the language? Look at where you are. Jesus, blow me. All right. Where's the bike? I'm sorry? He's our brother. He broke his leg and he died. And all you want to know is where that bike is. He didn't is. die from the leg injury. An animal. That bike was like three grand, so yeah, I want to know where it is. What, you want Beth to have it? Oh, fuck Beth. Beth is the girlfriend. I see. We work 9-11. Not a scratch on us. Petey's job is to ride a bike. And he gets killed. Seriously, you don't know where the bike is? So while what Jackie does here could be an action that saves a life somewhere down the line, it is a huge breach of the nursing code of ethics. And this, along with other actions later in the episode, and indeed the rest of the series, came under scrutiny from the New York State Nurses Association shortly after going to air, decrying the character's behaviour as having a detrimental impression on nurses and how that could affect public perception. I can see where the association is coming from with that, and it's interesting that 11 years on and at the time of recording there is currently in the news calls for Netflix to add a disclaimer to The Crown, informing viewers that the show is fiction. While I'm sure, much like in every profession or industry in the world, there are bad apples, it's important to remember that this is a work of fiction. It's entertainment. It's escapism. And while some people may be daft enough to believe everything they see on TV or read online, the vast majority of people are able to make that distinction between fiction and reality. So after meeting up with the family, Jackie meets up again with Fitch. And we get a good example of the differing levels of professionalism from the pair of them. Jackie referring to him as Dr. Cooper, while Fitch greets her with a loud Jackie and insists she call him Coop. Jackie isn't having any of it though and firmly calls him Dr. Cooper once again, Fitch this time putting on a sarcastic tone calling her Nurse Jackie, which in and of itself still isn't right as that's not her surname, but at least he managed to work the show's title into the dialogue in a natural way. He asks her what he can do for her, as Jackie unleashes a tirade, saying that he can stay the fuck away from her, and that she's seen hundreds of doctors like him come through the hospital, and that while he may have been in the top 5 or 10% of his class, he's awful when it comes to actual patients, and how she's had to lie about having done everything they can to the dead man's mother. As she continues to call Fitch out on his shit, he grabs Jackie by the breast, 
After a few seconds of not breaking a gaze, Jackie asks what the hell's happening as Fitch bullshits an excuse about how when he gets nervous he acts out with, as he puts it, inappropriate sexual touches and likens it to Tourette's Syndrome. As Jackie tries to move past that, he continues to babble and finishes off by saying that he isn't attracted to her at all right at the moment that another woman walks into the room. Calling Fitch a charmer as ever, she informs Jackie that the Wicked Witch of the West is looking for her, and that it's something about dropping a house on her sister, so even after leaving our show, Edie Falco still can't get away from Oz references. So Jackie leaves and tries to escape the clutches of the hospital administrator, Gloria Acolytus, making her way down a hallway to another part of the hospital where she runs into Muhammad, one of the hospital's ER nurses who is trying to pass first-year ER nurse Zoe on to Jackie for training, saying that he's taken the last three. Muhammad is played by Haz Slayman. Born July 1st, 1976 in Beirut, Lebanon, Haz moved to the US in his early 20s, studying at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Making his acting debut in the 2004 movie The Ski Trip, playing the role of Tyson, he is perhaps best known for his role as Tarek in Tom McCarthy's critically acclaimed 2007 movie The Visitor, where he was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, as well as being nominated in the Best Breakthrough Performance category at the Online Film and Television Association Awards, and was also nominated for Ensemble Awards at both the Gotham Independent Film Awards and by the Boston Society of Film Critics. Zoe, the kooky trainee that Jackie is getting lumped with, is played by Merritt Weaver. Born August 11th, 1980 in Manhattan, Merritt graduated from Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School before attending Sarah Lawrence College in Yonkers, New York. Beginning a career in low-budget movies, Merritt appeared off-Broadway in the plays Smashing and Cave Dweller. On TV, she has credits across the Law & Order franchise, as well as two episodes of The Wire on HBO, but her first major recurring role came in 2006, where she appeared as Suzanne for 12 episodes of NBC's Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, before appearing here on Nurse Jackie in the role she is best known for. Before Jackie and Zoe can get on with her business, though, Jackie turns around to find Gloria reading her the riot act about working a shitload of overtime, claiming that working more than 12 and a half hours could result in nurses making mistakes, something which Jackie calls lies. She tries to shoo away with Zoe a couple of times, but Gloria keeps pulling her back, contradicting everything she's been saying by asking Jackie to work a double shift next week, and asks whether or not Jackie has stolen Dr. Akebwe's pen, which Jackie does admit to doing. Finally free from Gloria, Jackie and Zoe head off, Jackie noticing that Zoe is quiet, and says that she likes her students that way. Jackie might have spoken too soon though, as Zoe starts to ramble. Good, you're quiet. I like him quiet. Which I think is funny. But I just want you to know, I think it's super great that I'll be with you all day. I can tell you're somebody who, you know, lives a job, and that's totally me. Totally. Okay, a quick question? Sure. Shut up. Is that a question? I don't like chatty. Okay? I don't do chatty. I like quiet. Quiet and mean. Those are my people. Down in one of the pharmacies, we meet Eddie Walzer, who we've all met before, as he's played by Paul Schulz from Series 2. At this point in time, this was the third project that he and Edie had appeared in. They didn't actually share any screen time on Oz, although there was a moment where Paul's character, Officer Heim, phoned through to speak to Diane, so they kinda did, but didn't really appear together. 
They did, however, have a will-they-won't-they they romantic storyline going on in The Sopranos, where Paul appeared as Father Philip in Tintola, and as previously mentioned, Edie appeared as Carmela Soprano. Eddie asks how Zoe feels about taking a cart of meds up to the chemo ward, Zoe unsurprisingly saying yes, seemingly willing to do anything to impress. With Zoe out of the way wheeling a wobbly cart around, Eddie and Jackie grab the opportunity to have a quickie in the pharmacy, Paul Schulz having now completed the three steps to Edie. Eddie needs to learn on his technique though as Jackie starts to complain that her back is hurting, and she actually seems in quite tremendous pain, so they go for a lay down on the nurse's cot, which looks like it's just some kind of foot on bed. It does look for a moment like Eddie is going to walk her across there with his pants round his ankles, which would have been hilarious, but he pulls them up and they both lay down, Jackie setting a stopwatch so that they can fit in a five minute cuddle. Eddie asks if she wants anything for her back, but Jackie says that she'll be okay at first, but then says that maybe a little oxycodone will help. The five minute power nap is interrupted though as Jackie is summoned to the operating theatre, and we get a close up on some more medication being snorted, as another patient is wheeled in. This time it's a prostitute who's been cut up by a John, which I believe is the street term for her client. Asking whether or not they caught the guy, the EMT tells Jackie no, but to be on the lookout for Vincent Van Gogh, because the young woman managed to get the knife and cut off the guy's ear. And she passes it to Jackie, so she's managed to get all the way to the hospital clutching some guy's ear. A pleased Jackie tells a good girl, before passing the ear to Zoe to put on ice as they continue on to theatre. Looking disgusted at the ear, Zoe looks like she's about to vomit, as a distant Jackie advises her to puke away from the ear, as Zoe runs off camera. As she does, there's an orderly making his way around who just shakes his head, as if to say, these newbies can't handle this. The young woman being wheeled in here is played by Alexandra Daddario, who at this time wasn't really that well known. Her only recurring role was for All My Children, which she first appeared in when she was 16, but her career really took off a few years later, appearing in NBC's Parenthood, the first season of True Detective, and she was in San Andreas with Dwayne Johnson, as well as the Baywatch movie, which, I'll be honest, was a lot better than it had any right to be. We don't get to see this bit of surgery as we cut to Jackie sitting in a hallway as some nuns pass her by. It's referenced earlier that Jackie works at All Saints Hospital, and I don't think it's uncommon in the US for hospitals and small churches to share buildings, particularly in the larger cities. The friend who walked in on Jackie and Fitch earlier on comes by and sits with Jackie. So this is Dr. Eleanor O'Hara, played by Eve Best, and at first I thought this was a case of an American actress doing a dodgy English accent, but as it turns out, Eve Best is actually an English actress. Born July 31st, 1971 in London, Eve studied English at Lincoln College, Oxford, as well as training at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Prior to acting on screen, Eve earned a number of theatre credits, making her debut at the Southwark Playhouse in a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and earning awards for her appearance in 1999's Tis Pity She Is A Whore, as well as a Laurence Olivier Award for Hedda Gabler, where she appeared alongside Benedict Cumberbatch and Ian Glenn at London's Almeida and Duke of York's Theatres. Eve also earned a number of credits at London's National Theatre, including credits for productions such as The Heiress, The Cherry Orchard, The Coast of Utopia, and Morning Becomes Electra making a TV acting debut in 2000 with appearances in The Bill and Casualty, a rite of passage for British actors, 
The first recurring role came in 2001's TV miniseries The Infinite Worlds of H.G. Wells, and her first significant film role came in the TV movie Shackleton, appearing with Kenneth Branagh. With credits on British TV for shows such as Waking the Dead and the Inspector Lindley Mysteries, as well as a recurring role in ITV's Vital Signs, this role on Nurse Jackie marked Eve's debut on US television. The friendship between Jackie and Eleanor is quickly established as Eleanor complains about her shoes hurting her, even if they do make her legs look fantastic, and Jackie tries one on for herself. The sound of a woman screaming fills the hallway as both women look across to her, and Jackie just says that she needs to get something to eat, neither woman looking particularly deterred by the terrifying screams of pain, setting up that they've not only known each other for some time, but also worked together for an extended period as well both of them having become desensitised to a degree. So the pair of them head off to a pretty swanking-looking hotel for dinner, and Jackie tells Eleanor about Fitch grabbing her boob, Eleanor jokingly asking if the tip made the first move, as Jackie says that Fitch killed a bike messenger, which implies that Fitch straight-up murdered the guy, but obviously it was down to incompetence, which Jackie references as well as calling him dangerous. Jackie asks Eleanor what doctors have against healing people, which Eleanor disagrees with, and that having a healing attitude is why Jackie is a nurse, as she recalls a time when she was younger where she cut open a dead rabbit with a butter knife, which is actually a pretty amazing achievement when you think about it, to see how it worked inside, and that's why she's a doctor. Jackie says that deep down Eleanor does care, but Eleanor again disagrees with her, as well as chomping on the crustiest bread known to man. Do you realise you're the only sane one there? As they continue to talk, one of their fellow diners begins to choke on their food, and neither woman is in a hurry to help out as they're both off the clock, Jackie finally being the one to give in, and only doing so because Eleanor is paying for the lunch. Jackie saves the woman's life using the Heimlich manoeuvre, clearly well versed in using it as she dislodges the killer food on the first pump, and Eleanor sings Jackie's praises telling another diner about how great it is that the hotel has a nurse on duty. Good little pair of scenes here between these two characters, and like I mentioned a moment ago, their friendship is established very quickly in this piece of world building. In fact, there's a lot of character relationships established very early on. In the first 15 minutes alone, we've seen Jackie butt heads with Fitch, she's been introduced to Zoe by way of Muhammad, she's had a run-in with Gloria, she's had a quickie with Eddie, she's been out to lunch with Eleanor, all of which goes towards building the world in which Jackie lives and introduces us all to the main players on the show and I think it works really well, even if it's done out of necessity more than anything else. All too often in the modern day, and I realise I'm saying this about an episode which itself is 11 years old, you've got to hook your audience early on. You've got to give them a reason to care about your protagonist, and give them a reason to keep tuning in. And the slow burn of world building and establishing character has become something of a lost art form, especially in the era of streaming and binge-watching. You also have to factor in this show has a shorter runtime. Each episode comes in at less than 30 minutes, which I was really surprised at when I put it on. I don't know if that's just because I've become accustomed to the one-hour drama format, but with just 30 minutes with which to entertain the viewer, you've got to get characters and storylines across in a meaningful way very quickly. Otherwise, if the show performs badly, it could wind up cancelled, and then it's gone, unless by a miracle another network steps in to keep it running. Shows tend to live on a knife edge these days, so you've got to hook the viewer in early on. 
Back in the hospital, Jackie meets up with Zoe, who apologises for puking everywhere, and promises it'll never happen again. A pessimistic Jackie tells her, yes it will, and we're on to the next patient. 16-year-old male shot a Roman candle out of his ass. Third-degree burns in his scrotum and perirectal area. Find an open GYN, let's get him in the stirrups. Where's Jackie? Someone get Jackie for me? I'm right here. So, big banger jackass from this derpy cunt, who tells Jackie and Fitch that it's okay for them to laugh, which Jackie says no one is, and she's right to do so. Don't get me wrong, me and my mates acted like a bunch of gobshites when we were teenagers too, but don't put anything near your ass. And certainly don't put anything in it, that's just asking for trouble. Having lost one patient already today, Fitch is taking things more seriously this time, and asks the lad what he's taken so that they don't end up giving him something which could be dangerous to mix. And Jackie identifies the kid as being under the influence of a hallucinogenic, and reveals that she had her fun, but is now teetotal, and that she likes to have a clear head. We get a really funny moment where the nuns from earlier on pass by the room and are horrified at the sight of the kid's arsehole. Fitch asking for the door to be closed as they're escorted away, some of them shielding their eyes from the offending orifice. Zoe asks if she can take a picture of the kid's injuries, saying that her brother is a bong hit away from suffering a similar fate, and the scene closes with Muhammad entering the room, greeted by a teenager's burnt-out arsehole, and he has to speak with one of them when they have a minute. Cut to the waiting room where Jackie approaches him, but he shepherds her away for a moment to warn her that the bike messenger's girlfriend, a woman named Beth, played by April Hernandez-Castillo, wants to talk with someone. Jackie protests, asking why the social worker isn't dealing with it, and we get a mention of there being heat between the departments after Mohammed kissed the social worker's husband at the previous year's Christmas party. Jackie walks the halls with a heavily pregnant Beth discussing Peter's supposed organ donor status. I'm so confused. He never said anything about being an organ donor. I don't want you to just cut him up like that, you know? Well, I'm afraid that train has already left the station. <laughs> don't listen to me, honey. I, I, I cannot even begin to imagine what it must feel like to be you right now. And I'm not going to cushion it and, and tell you I'm so sorry for your loss. I know it is much bigger than that. But I am deeply, deeply sorry. But if it's any comfort, he's gonna be a hero now. His body is gonna save lives. Okay. Fine. Can I have his heart? I'm sorry? Oh, how about a kidney? I know there's like this organ market where rich people buy, pay a lot of money for body parts. I know it doesn't work that way. 20,000 bucks for a kidney. Don't you think he holds me that? For getting himself killed on that goddamn bike? <laughs> what the fuck am I supposed to do? I can't even pay for a cab home. Jackie comforts Beth as the scene closes, with Beth talking about how Peter made her pancakes that morning, and we end on a long shot of them in the corridor which has a statue of Christ down at the far end, symbolic of the difference between Jackie being a saviour and where she truly stands. The show is listed as a comedy drama, and we've seen more of the comedy side of things so far, 
but this scene was probably the most down-to-earth one so far, highlighted by Beth inquiring about selling organs on the black market, and the struggles that are bearing down on her with Peter now gone. More shots of Jackie snorting some meds up before heading back to work where she runs into Officer Ryan, played by Rene Ifra, who's with a man who's missing an ear. His left ear, to be exact, the one which the prostitute cut off earlier in the night. Asking why the guy isn't in cuffs, it turns out this guy is the executive secretary to the Libyan ambassador, and can't be detained because he has diplomatic immunity. Which, as a concept, and to quote Tim McManus for a moment, is fucking bullshit. The level of immunity can vary depending on the diplomat's rank, but if you're a high-ranking one, you can get away with pretty much anything, as can your deputies and your family. And without referencing any particular case directly, anybody who hides behind diplomatic immunity is a disgusting piece of shit. In the operating theatre, Jackie is with her Libyan diplomat, who's asking how long it's going to take to get his ear sorted, and claims that the prostitute cut herself, and that American women do things for attention. He asks what Jackie does for attention, but Jackie leaves without answering and goes to retrieve his rotting ear, yelling fuck you at it, and then flushing it down the toilet. This hospital having a good flushing system, sending it down in one go, as we fade to Muhammad and Jackie laying on the hospital chapel's pews looking at the portrait of the Passion of John the Baptist, wondering what someone would offer as a side dish when serving up John the Baptist's head. In trying to find out who painted this portrait, I discovered that there are fucking loads of them, and it would take me fucking ages to go through them all trying to identify this particular one. The closest one that resembles the one we see here is Caravaggio's Salome Contesta del Battista, painted between 1607 and 1610, which is now housed at London's National Gallery. Jackie decides to go with a side dish of coleslaw, which is bad enough, only to then change her mind to the even worse suggestion of mac and cheese, before settling on the more acceptable but not top of the list potato salad, as Mohammed suggests rum and cokes all round. Jackie thinks that they could have saved Peter earlier in the day, and while she was hoping for Mohammed to give her the tried and tested you tried your best speech, something which she seems accustomed to hearing, they ask each other whether or not they truly believe that, before the conversation shifts to what the advantages of dating a man with no torso would be. The scene closing with Muhammad ranting about some issues he may be having with his partner. You know, there would be some definite advantages to dating a man without a torso. You could carry him in your purse. You could never leave. You could put him in the oven when he talks back. Hmm. Or throw his stupid head overboard when you catch him fucking a pool boy on a cruise to celebrate your six-month anniversary that you had to pay for because he is such a narcissistic fucking asshole. How is Randy? Oh, he's good. Back in the main hospital, Jackie is attaching a patient's IV while Zoe is getting philosophical, asking Jackie whether or not she thinks there is a finite amount of pain in the world and that maybe God said, I want this amount of suffering, divide it up as you like. Jackie admits that's an interesting concept, but would make God a bit of a prick, which, yeah, it would. Good point, Jackie. Add it to the list of examples. Admitting that she tends to overthink things, Zoe is told to go home, but she tells Jackie that she thinks that she's a saint. This is a bit of cruel irony, as the machine which Jackie attached the IV to starts to sound an alarm, meaning that Jackie has to act quickly and remove the offending fluid. 
She says a couple of times that she nearly killed them, and she's clearly very upset by this, and she kisses the patient on the head as she leaves. And obviously this pays off the line from Gloria earlier in the episode about nurses making mistakes after working long shifts. So again, we've established very quickly that while Jackie might go against the code of ethics in certain situations, she clearly cares about the people she treats, as she was saying at a dinner with Eleanor. We've seen both sides of her at work, and while her actions may be questionable on occasion, her motivation for doing them can be justified in some way. The episode closes out with a montage of Jackie finishing up her shift, and we see her taking a pair of Ugg boots from Dr. Akebwe's locker, reading, Seriously, don't take my stuff, adding those to the hall, which already includes a pen, and leaving them along with a money clip, which she seems to have lifted from someone else's jacket, with a sleeping Beth, who's taken to sleeping in one of the hospital visiting rooms. Trapsing out into the rain, Jackie meets up with Eddie once again, who asks her if she wants to come over, but Jackie tells him not tonight in a literal example of taking a rain check. Before he heads off, Eddie gives us something for her back. A can of Dr. Pepper, and some moon pie. Now, I like a can of Dr. Pepper as much as anyone, but I'm not convinced by its healing powers, and neither is Jackie as she says that she was hoping for some Vicodin. Eddie, saying that he's not an idiot, hands her a blister pack of pills. They tell one another that they love each other, and they go their separate ways in the New York rain. At a crossing, Jackie asks a bike messenger to be careful, but the knobhead tells her fuck you, which I imagine is just a New York thing more than anything else. With that, a surprised-looking Jackie stabs his front tyre just as he's about to leave using a pen, which may or may not have been the stolen one, and the ratter heads off into the night. Bit of a double-edged sword right there, Jackie isn't taking that shit from a bike messenger, so fuck you, mate. But ultimately, a knackered tyre means that he's gonna have to get off the road, so Jackie gets to do a good thing and teach someone a lesson in the process. She arrives home in what looks like one of the outer city suburbs, where it's revealed that rather than being in a loving relationship with Eddie, he's actually the affair that Jackie's having as we meet Jackie's two daughters, as well as her husband Kevin, played by Dominic Famosa. Before she greets her husband, we see Jackie placing her wedding ring back onto her ring finger, which could just be a case of Jackie deciding not to wear it for work, nurses aren't obligated to remove rings or wedding bands, but it could also be a case that she's also keeping a married life a secret from Eddie. The episode closes with Jackie's narration, asking for God to make her good, but not just yet, as she steps back into the shadows. All of these scenes from Jackie leaving to hospital to arriving home are underscored with another version of Theme from Valley of the Dolls, this time performed by K.D. Lang. If I were a saint, which maybe I want to be, maybe I don't, I would be like Augustine. He knew there was good in him, and he knew there was some not so good. And he wasn't going to give up his earthly pleasures before he was good and ready. Make me good, God. But not yet. Right? Hello, my loves. Hello, my ah! Come here, baby. Oh. Oh. A moon pie. Mm-hmm. For me? Mm-hmm. Split it with your sister.
Hey, babe. I made pancakes for dinner. How great is that? It bears repeating. Make me good, God. But not yet. So there you go, Series 1, Episode 1 of Nurse Jackie, starring Edie Falco. This is a show that, for one reason or another, I've never contemplated seeking out to watch. Which is a bit odd, because I think Edie Falco is a great actress. I thought she was good for the most part on Oz, and she really came into her own on The Sopranos. A view shared by many as evidenced by the amount of praise and awards she had for that. I don't know if it was a case of me thinking that maybe she couldn't reach that level again with this, perhaps in parts of this being labelled a comedy drama, but I really enjoyed this, and at under 30 minutes beginning to end, you could easily blast through the whole show in a week if you have the free time to do so. You had four or five very different situations or conflicts set up in this episode. You've got her preparing Zoe for the world of nursing, a frosty relationship with her supervisor Gloria, a romantic relationship with co-worker Eddie, the breaking of her code of ethics despite it possibly saving a life in the future, and it's topped off with an entirely separate life that she has at home juggling two daughters and what appears on the surface to be a loving husband. The comedy probably did outweigh the drama in certain areas, but it never felt like it was in danger of wandering into sitcom territory. Unlike last year's Christmas review where we looked at Happy, which was a much more goofy, oddball comedy, this struck the right balance of having dramatic situations alongside some funny one-liners and enjoyable performances from the supporting cast. Whether that tone remains for the rest of the show remains to be seen, but I found this to be an easy watch, and at 30 minutes per episode can easily be slotted into your viewing, and I'm looking forward to watching more of it. So for this episode, I'm going to give it a solid 7 out of 10. At the time of airing, this episode was Showtime's most successful debut, attracting over 1 million viewers, with another 350,000 watching the repeat broadcast. On June 9th, 2009, the day after the episode aired, Showtime immediately ordered a second 12-episode season of the show, which debuted in March 2010. The episode was received with generally positive reviews, with Entertainment Weekly grading it a B+, and writing that Edie Falco brought a genial forceness to the role, while New York Magazine called it the best yet in the cable channel's ongoing meditation on addiction and the setting for a truly breakthrough female character. The show earned generally favourable reviews throughout the course of its 80-episode run over the course of seven seasons, its final episode airing on June 28, 2015. As well as being well-received by critics, the show also won a number of awards over the course of its run, with Edie Falco winning the Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series at the Primetime Emmy Awards in 2010, Edie's fourth Primetime Emmy overall, with the show picking up a further four awards between 2010 and 2015. The show also received nominations at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Golden Globes, and the BAFTA Awards, and also had further award wins at the NAACP Image Awards, the Online Film and Television Association, as well as winning three PRISM Awards for its portrayal of substance abuse. The show is still available to watch in the UK on Amazon Prime, as well as Sky Box Sets and Now TV. I'm sure it's available to stream somewhere in the US, and it's also available on both DVD and Blu-ray, so go check it out. Fail. So as you know, if you follow the podcast on social media, which you can do on Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Podcast. 
or if you delve into the Oz subreddit, you'll have seen that I put the call out for you guys to submit some Ask Me Anything type questions to round out the year for a bit of fun. As I'm essentially re-watching the show for the podcast, I'm going to keep my answers based around what we've covered in the first three series, unless there's something specific from a later season that we've yet to cover, but obviously be aware that we could be heading into spoiler territory with that. First up, we have a bunch of questions from Balance Medium on the Oz subreddit. I'm not going to answer all of them, but I'll pick a few of them from this list. Okay, so first up, who is your favourite Oz character? I have a bunch of characters that I like. I think Rebido and Boo's Malice are a great double act. Schillinger is full of great moments, even though he's an utter shitbag. Keller has an alluring charm to him. But I think I've been pretty clear on the podcast so far in displaying that my tip-top favourite character is Simon Adebisi. I've used the word presence when talking about him and other characters in the past, and every scene that Adebisi is in, I can't take my eyes off the screen, even when he was going through his docile phase during Series 3. The scene where he arrived back to his original form when Kenny came back from his wife's funeral is one of the absolute best on the show, and part of that is down to Kenny's reaction too. In the space of a few seconds, Adebisi has gone from being a docile pushover to being, as he calls himself, the king of M-City, and in a lot of ways, he is the king. While there is a political hierarchy in M-City, and all of the gangs have their own leader, and some gangs have partnerships with others to try and benefit each other, none of them have a member with the amount of menace that Adebisi brings. Other gangs have tough guys, Oz is full of tough guys, but none of them are as terrifyingly sadistic as Adebisi is. On the flip side of the coin, who is your least favourite character? From these first three series, I'd probably have to say William Giles, because fuck me did that storyline between him and Sister Pete outstay its welcome during series two. Something which could have been wrapped up in a single episode, two at the absolute most, somehow got stretched over half the series, and the payoff itself was really unsatisfying, and it made Sister Pete look an idiot for failing to figure out what is a very easy to work out riddle and it was linked to something that would be so close to her heart that her not getting it straight away just left you rolling your eyes. Then he turned up again towards the end of this series peddling the same routine, but luckily we only saw him the once. We've still got some way to go with him as he turns up again in Series 4, but I'm also aware that Series 4 also brings with it Omar White, who I specifically remember being a right annoying fuckwit, so it's a toss-up between those two for least favourite character. Last question from Balance Medium, and this is one that a few people asked actually in various forms, which character would you most like to be your friend? Aside from the obvious tough guys like Chucky and Keller, which would obviously be very handy when things got out of hand, I honestly would love to be friends with Rebido and Boo's Malice, purely because they're just a pair of dottering old men who just keep themselves to themselves and do their best to stay out of trouble. Boozmalas looks like he'd have a load of fun stories about various escapes that he's carried out too, so I'm gonna go with them as being my Oz buddies. Max Feinstein, who did the awesome cover of the Oz theme on the Series 3 finale, he asked me a while back when we were first collaborating, do you think there's a difference between Augustus the person and Augustus the narrator? I always felt like Augustus in jail was far less learned than our omniscient narrator. I do kind of agree with that, and that's not to say that Augustus the character is dumb in any way, he has a lot of street smarts, but I've always looked at Augustus on the show and Augustus as the narrator as two entirely different characters. 
We spoke way back in Series 1 about how Augustus the narrator acts as the Greek chorus, giving background information to help follow the performance, as well as introducing various themes into the episode. And we've seen over the course of the first three series that change to include other characters within his vignette. But I think the most important thing with Augustus and the narrator was to have someone with the right charisma to pull off those monologues. Had they put someone else in that role, I don't know if the monologues would have had that same pizzazz. You'll recall back in Series 1 I mentioned about Adewale auditioning for the role of Augustus, and there's footage of him delivering one of the monologues in his normal English accent. But Seth Gilliam also auditioned for the part as well, which I don't think would have worked at all, and that's not a shot at Seth Gilliam. I just don't think he'd have been right for the role at all. Harold's way of delivering those lines though, as well as switching it up to play the actual character of Augustus, he has charisma in spades and was ultimately the right choice. Courtney Brown, who emailed their question, asks, Why are you always talking about O.J. Simpson? Well, I only brought O.J. up because Poet makes a reference to him in one of his poems, and O.J. also happened to have something happen in real life on a day that an episode was broadcast. But in a wider context, the whole O.J. Simpson trial is something that I have vivid memories of happening. I can remember my dad coming into the living room saying, Turn on the news! Turn on the news! And I'm thinking, as any nine-year-old kid would do, Why? The news is fucking boring. And he turns it on, and there's O.J. Simpson and Al Cowlings bombing it down the freeway in the white Ford Bronco. Then, of course, you had the trial and the verdict, which, again, I can vividly remember watching. It was on BBC Two for some reason, and I was sat in my brother's bedroom watching it on the TV, and as it was read out, I heard my dad shout from downstairs, What? How the hell has he got away with that? Ever since then, the whole OJ thing has fascinated me. How was he found not guilty when all the evidence seemed to point the other way? And it can't be understated how enormous an event that was in the media, particularly in the American media. It was the first celebrity trial that I can remember happening. And as I mentioned on the podcast, go and watch Ezra Edelman's OJ Made in America documentary. It's absolutely fascinating and a fantastic piece of filmmaking. So yeah, I don't mention OJ Simpson for no reason. I only bring him up because of something that was relevant to the show. Final question then comes from Anthony from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, who asks, As you're clearly a wrestling fan, which I still am to a degree, if you were to build a Survivor Series team, who would you have on your team? That's a damn good question, but I think I'd have to go with Adebisi, purely because I think he'd be able to dish out some wicked punishment. I'd probably go with Keller on there too, because as we saw when he broke Beach's arms and legs, he's got some great MMA skills. And I think I'd have to go with a couple of guys from the boxing tournament as well. Chucky could bring some explosive power, while Hamid could bring it also, as well as being that bit more refined a fighter. So yeah, Adebisi, Keller, Chucky and Hamid. I think that's a pretty good team right there. Shout out to John Lister on Twitter as well, who asked me a few weeks ago whether or not I've ever gone through the gangs and rated them Survivor Series style to see who would come out on top. And I think we settled on the Gears as being the team that would win out on that one, but I'd have to go back and review that one properly. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. The mailbag is always a lot of fun to do, so if you have any questions about the show, or anything else for that matter, I'll let you know how you can get in touch in a moment. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, CastBox... Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, 
or wherever you get your podcast from. There you will find the entire series 1, 2 and 3 of Inside Oz, as well as the four previous Outside Oz bonus episodes. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5 star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz related or non related questions or comments for the mailbag, you can email the show at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or get in touch through social media by following the show on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. With 2020 putting its shoes on and getting ready to leave and never return, I will be back in 2021 with Series 4A, some of whom believe that to be the show's best season. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and as always, I hope you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Quasi Kwanzaa, a Tip Top Tet, and a Solemn Dignified Ramadan. See you in 2021, everyone, where it can't possibly be as bad as it was this year, and take care of yourselves. Last Christmas, I gave you